Hi, and welcome back to this week's episode of Mastering Agility, a podcast series with and for inspiring agilists, bringing you the best of the business. This podcast series is brought to you by agilitymasters.com, providing you with all the agile coaches and scrum masters you need. Make sure to go to the website of agilitymasters.com in order to stay up to date with the latest information when it comes to this podcast. Now, this week's guest is a legend when it comes to product development. We're going to be talking about product goals, the latest edition in the Scrum Guide, and how to work with them. We're going to be talking about the confusion as well, when this new terminology has been built upon the already existing list of product vision, product goals, sprint goals. Where do we need to begin? Let's welcome Roman. Hi Sander, nice to be on your show. Thank you very much for being here. Hey, first and foremost, I want to talk to you about the latest edition of this, the product goals in the update of the uh, Scrum Guide. There seems mm-hmm. to be a little bit of confusion about what's the difference between a product goal and a product vision. If you have a product goal, do you still need a product vision? What's your view on this? Yeah, great question. So as far as I can remember, <laughs> the Scrum Guide that was published last year in November, November 2020, um, says something along the lines that the product goal would describe a future state of the product. And it's uh, a long-term objective, I believe, that guides the product owner, um, the developers, and the Scrum Masters so the entire Scrum team. And the entire Scrum team works towards one product goal at one point in time. And I, I think personally, it's uh, a rather exciting addition to the Scrum Guide. Um, I think sprint goals are very powerful. Um, um, but I think, uh, you know, obviously a sprint goal is just a very short term, um, tactical execution focused, um, objective. Uh, it only lasts, it's only valid for a few weeks at a time. And so having, um, a goal that, uh, you know, is somewhat has a longer time frame, um, covers a longer period, uh, I think is, is very, very useful. Um, now, what the Scrum Guide, of course, doesn't explain or doesn't state is um, how to apply the, the idea, the concept of a product goal. So I don't think it, it offers a really very crisp definition, or it certainly doesn't prescribe in any way you know, how product goals should be applied and ultimately what makes a good product goal. So for me, I like to think of the product goal as the a specific and measurable benefits that a product should uh, create, should provide over the next, say, three to six months. So I like to think of the product goal as something that describes uh, a desired outcome or a benefit. So for instance, you know, if, um, if I think about offering a healthy eating product, the ability to understand my eating habits as a user of that product. And maybe, you know, if I um, think about the company developing and providing the products, then the benefit to the company could be to acquire an initial user base, for instance, or possibly depending on the business model to start generating revenue. So that's that's my take on it. But I'm somewhat biased, I have to say, because I've been working with product goals for a little while, uh, for a few years, in fact. Um, and so, you know... <laughs> You have to take what I what I say and suggest with a pinch of salt. Yeah, of course, but still, if you're working for with a product goal um, for years, um, how do you feel about this now popping up after the, all these years? Like it, it, when you're explaining, it feels like yeah, that makes total sense. Why only now has this been brought up in the in the Scrum Guide? You feel? 
So I don't know, to be honest. I haven't been in touch with uh, Ken Schwaber and Jeff Sutherland for a little while. Um, so I wasn't in any way involved in the uh, update of the Scrum Guide um, and the publication of the latest version. Um, many years ago, um, and I'd have to sort of look this up, but about 10 years ago or so, the Scrum Guide at one stage contained the, the idea, the notion of a release goal, which is somewhat similar, but obviously these days, not everybody works, works with releases in the sense of major releases or new product versions. Um, and so that was dropped um, fairly quickly again. But, um, you, you know, so, so you know, midterm goals have existed in Scrum before. And I think it's great. I think it's a really useful addition that now the Scrum Guide suggests that product goal. And not only does it offer um, a, a more... Um, you know, a longer goal for the Scrum team to um, work towards and hopefully for the stakeholders to um, align with. Um, um, but also, um, does it create more of a product focus and a product orientation, which uh, personally, again, I think is, is very beneficial. But then, you know, as I've said, I'm biased. <laughs> I tend to specialize in product management and product ownership. So anything to do with product, anything that strengthens product thinking, you know, I tend to regard as something positive. <laughs> Feels great. Now, st stakeholders, uh, that's uh, something interesting that you touch upon. How do you keep those engaged with the product goals, for instance? Um, mm -hmm. What I typically see, and especially with, with uh, the larger products and the larger incumbents, is that the stakeholders are a bit more far away from these product goals and they might be involved with the product vision, but they seem to disconnect and disengage when it comes to sprint goals and, and product goals. Yeah, that's a great question. So with regards to sprint goals, that's in a way cool. I think the sprint goal really is um, an agreement between the product owner and the development team, or you know, these days referred to as developers. Um, and I think that's uh, that's the way it, it, it really should be. The product goal for me then really offers uh, this midterm um alignment of um, the, the Scrum team members. But I think it's also great to discuss uh, product goals with the stakeholders or include them, invite them in shaping product goals. I think the Scrum Guide suggests that the product owner is responsible that a product goal exists and is responsible for communicating. But I think, you know, when we work with goals, then they only become truly powerful if people, first of all, understand them. But then also, you know, when when people accept them, when people support them and buy into them and actually work th through um, towards them, <laughs> work through them, work towards them and see them through. <laughs> That's what I wanted to say, see them through. Um, so, you know, if the, the product owner comes up with a beautiful product goal and then, you know, expects the, the rest of the Scrum team and expects the stakeholders just to rally around and it's like, yeah, great, brilliant, of course, you know, then... I think for you know for a lot of teams and a lot of stakeholders that's asking too much. I think it's it's really valuable to give people the opportunity to be involved in the decision making process and leverage the individual's uh, knowledge and creativity. Um, and again, that tends to lead to uh, not only better understanding and alignment, but also much stronger support. Is that something that you do? Then you mentioned the individual. Is that something as of a strategy that you individualize when it comes to product goals, for instance, and the way that you approach them and really make it personal? And then how do you deal with that? What's your strategy? Um, so maybe I uh, chose the wrong uh, the wrong word. Um, individuals in the sense of you know, a group of people. So I have a strong preference of um, 
using a collaborative approach to a goal setting um, because of the reasons that I've stated. You know, it's great to have goals, but if these goals are the product owner's goals and other people don't support them, don't buy into them, they're not worth much. And that starts with the product vision and that continues with the product goal. And it's certainly also true for the sprint goal, right? I mean, as the product owner, if I essentially take a sprint goal and tell the development team, the developers, here it is, I don't think that's good. Uh, I don't think that's good leadership. I don't think that's good practice. So my preferred approach is always to try and um, bring people on board and invite people to discover the right goals. Um, and of course, that, in, that, that it is likely to involve um, an element of uh, disagreement and friction and debate. But I think if it's handled in the right way and if it's set up uh, effectively and if you have the Scrum Master or another experienced facilitator present who establishes some ground rules and facilitates the decision-making process, it can be very powerful. Do you, uh, or maybe a different way, the product vision is quite far down the road, right? How do you keep the engagement when it comes to this? Like, hmm. it's, it's pretty hard to really keep this in mind. Like we're continuously making steps toward this, this product vision. But how hmm. do you still make this on top of minds and on top of heads uh, when, when Scrum teams or any, any product development teams are working? Yeah, that's uh, another great question. So, you know, just to clarify the vision for me, and I've somewhat changed my mind uh, on this over the years, <laughs> the vision for me it really should describe the ultimate purpose of a product, uh, the reason why the product exists, the positive change it should bring about. So I've mentioned healthy and a healthy eating product as an example earlier. Um, so, you know, the vision of that product could be to help people eat more healthily. Um, and so I like to work with a vision that is um, pretty concise, maybe a slogan and so memorable um, and, you know, sticks with people um, that is big and hopefully inspiring. And uh, maybe most, most importantly, that is shared. And, and again, you know, my suggestion is my recommendation is to invite the, the key stakeholders and uh, the development team members, or at least representatives from the development team to shape that vision. But then for me, the jump from uh, a big uh, vision that, you know, I, I tend to say a vision should last uh, for at least five years um, and provide really a continued um, or continuity of purpose, continued purpose and to, to get from such a big vision to a, a specific and measurable protocol. Um, you know, that's a, that's a big step. So what I like to do is I like to take an intermediate step and break the vision down into um, a user and business goal. And so, you know, the user goal for a healthy eating product could be to help middle-aged men um, reduce the risk of developing type 2 diabetes. And the business goal could be to open up a new revenue stream and uh, earn, I don't know, you know, I'm making this up, uh, £50,000 uh, or euros or, or dollars within the first year of launching uh, the, the new app. Yeah. And once I've got these um, user and business goals, which I would typically uh, capture um, in, a, in a product strategy together with some other pieces of information, I'm, th I'm then in a good position to discover the right product goals. So I then you know, take the next step and I break those overarching user and business goals into a product goal. And then the product goal provides the context for discovering the right sprint goals. So what I've then done is I've created a hierarchy of cascading of interlinked goals from the vision to the sprint goal, down to the sprint goal. So ideally, 
by meeting an individual sprint goal, I should make a tiny bit of progress towards my vision. And by meeting a product goal, I should make uh, also progress towards uh, the vision and towards a specific user and business goal. So that's that's the approach that I like to suggest. Obviously, you know that is um, not something that is mandated in in any way by by Scrum or the Scrum Guide or embraced by uh, the Scrum Guide. But you know, I found that specific goal hierarchy very useful, and uh, it's grown out of my work over over many years. Um, when I first started working with Scrum and teaching product people, and that was about uh, in two thousand and four. I really could not see how you could systematically connect a short-term tactical sprint goal to this big, long-term, um, inspiring vision. And so it's taken me a few years to figure out one way how you can do this. <laughs> and I think that's a, that's a very valid point that you bring up there, because that's, that's what a lot of people seem to be struggling with, is hmm. indeed how you connect these kind of things and still make them very lively and tangible without losing the focus hmm. um, down the line. How um, how do you coach teams on this? What's your how do you keep them on top of mind? I mean, you've discussed what what you do, how it worked for mm -hmm. you, um, but how do you work with teams? Mm -hmm. So you know, usually by introducing that uh, hierarchy of cascading goals uh, to the team and suggesting that they consider applying it. Um, I mean, understanding that hierarchy is one thing, then the application is is another, and in, I find it's best applied again by adopting a collaborative approach and by having, say, an initial uh, visioning and strategizing workshop with the key stakeholders and development team members or representatives if you have multiple development teams, where you shape the initial, you, you formulate, you state the initial vision, and you create an initial uh, good enough product strategy. And then I like to suggest to include those individuals, um, those group members, in the process of validating um, the strategy, iterating over it, testing it out to make sure that the biggest uh, assumptions and the key risks have been addressed. And then once the strategy is validated, uh, I like to have uh, another strategy workshop where the roadmap is derived from that validated strategy. And what I would do um, with a product roadmap is not only to determine the very next product goal, but I, I find it useful, generally speaking, um, to look ahead for the next six to 12 months. And so, you know, select and determine, identify a number of product goals. Because I think that that's very useful in the sense that it describes how the product is likely to evolve over a longer, longer time frame. And it can help, um, you know, create some, some, some clarity, some alignment, not only for the stakeholders, but also the development team members. It can facilitate making the right technical decisions, for instance. Um, and it can also then help acquire a budget, you know, if that's necessary. Um, and then um, I like to continue to involve those uh, individuals, other key stakeholders and development team members in uh, regularly reviewing the product strategy and the product roadmap. And I typically uh, suggest quarterly review meetings. So, you know, by establishing that process, people are involved on a, on a regular basis and, you know, they hopefully see the product evolve. They hopefully then also are in a position to contribute to um, necessary changes to uh, the product strategy and the product roadmap so that these plans really direct the future work and help move the product in the right direction. That's interesting that you mentioned a quarterly um, review does that not tend to lose the ability to inspect and adapt based on whatever you encounter in between? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's right. So um, th that's a risk. So the obviously, you know, the the uh, sprint uh, cycles happening. And so let's let's assume that we're running two week sprints, which uh, seems to be the industry standard these days. Um, and then, um, you know, we have these quarterly strategic reviews. Um, so a tactical review, you could say, uh, in form of a sprint review every two weeks, and then a strategic review every every three months. Now, what I also suggest to product owners is that they block uh, at least half a day every week in their calendar to, for continuous um, discovery and strategizing work. And that means um, looking at the product performance and looking at all the KPIs and any data that is available on a, um, a daily or at least weekly basis, uh, looking at market trends, looking at competitors and any other um uh, any other changes within the company that could affect their product. And if uh, there is a bigger change or if uh, there's a bigger opportunity, a bigger a threat, then of course, you know, it's very worthwhile to have uh, a strategy workshop, a collaborative strategy workshop much sooner. So I'm not suggesting to religiously stick to that quarterly cadence, <laughs> no matter what, but as a default, uh, at least, you know, in a quarterly basis, get together and, uh, you know, based on the data that, that, that we've collected, and that includes then the development team's uh, ability to make progress in any uh, user feedback we've, collo um, we've, we've collected through, say, um, product demos or early releases, um, and to take all that data uh, and then um, use it to review the product strategy and the product roadmap and make any uh, any changes to those plans if, um, if, uh, if they're required, of course. Now, going back to you personally, um, you seem to have developed into an absolute authority when it comes to product development and product management. Um, your work has had tremendous impact on the way that I conduct my work. Um, how do you, besides running your own business and, and doing the field work, how do you still manage to keep and a podcast and a blog and all your templates and everything that's going on? What's your secret? Well, it's nice of you to, to say that. Um, I'm glad to hear that you found my, my work helpful. Um, so, you know, I, I think this, the secret for me is to try and um, have have regular breaks, take regular breaks. And I think that's something I like to suggest generally to product people because, you know, like myself, I think many product owners Many product people have a busy schedule and sometimes it's a bit hectic. And so I think it's very worthwhile to take regular breaks and, um, you know, have some time to hit the pause button and to reflect and uh, then just try and be uh, fairly disciplined and, and organized uh, about the work and, um, you know, do the work that, that you do within lim the limited time you have, you know, as, as effectively as possible. And, I mean, I, there's a lot of, uh, you know, work that uh, unfortunately I can't do, I'd like to do, but I, I can't. And so I, I've learned over the years that, you know, self-discipline also entails saying no. Um, and and that can be hard, but I think it's it's a worthwhile skill to learn uh, for, for anybody who looks after a product or a number of products. Uh, saying no is one of those, those things that's really hard in practice, and especially when you're in, in a very hierarchical culture right um and and people are not mandated to actually say no or um when they actually do say no they're they're kind of get the the immediate pushback how mm. is it that how can you turn this kind of a political game around 
Yeah, I think for me the the secret the secret is uh, to be uh, you know kind but firm and um, ideally have some data to back up any any perspective and any opinion. I think it's always good to have empirical evidence to show that um, the perspective of the product owner is not just her or his personal viewpoint opinion, but actually it's founded and um, it's it's justified. And secondly, I think it's um, it's always very useful to try and um, establish trust, or um, you know, at least reach out with empathy to people and take an, an interest in in their perspective and uh, their underlying needs, um, and and make an effort to listen attentively before we say no. I think that's very important so that people feel understood and they feel valued. I mean, you know, we might disagree with what the person uh, says and we may may not find the suggestion or the very helpful or the concern appropriate um we may not even particularly like the individual but i think it's still worthwhile to try and uh, you know make an effort and listen listen attentively and take some time to listen and understand and then and based on that um you know make make a make a decision and once people have been listened to and once people feel they've they're understood and once we've shown an interest in, say, a stakeholder, then the person is much more likely to to be able to hear to 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 receive a no, you know, rather than when we when we're stressed or when we're rushed and we're just saying like, oh no 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 no, it's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I mean, uh, I, I'm certainly guilty of having done that myself. Um, but uh, I think it's it's worthwhile trying to to kind of train ourselves when you know when when there is a request when when somebody asks for something to to take the time necessary to as I said you know build that understanding and and, and empathize and, and ultimately build some trust. Is that something that you start off with as soon? Let's let's say you come into an organization that's that's fairly new to any any kind of business agility practice. Is that something the building of trust? Is that something that you begin with before explaining anything or? Where in the process does that come around? Because that can be, uh, I don't want to put it down, but it sounds like a touchy-feely subject to mm. most organizations and especially mm. to the more, um, yeah, to the, to the bigger power, let's put it like that. And, and touchy-feely stuff is not something that they want to be involved with. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are some organizations that, uh, you're right, Um you know, very rational, or you know, I find sometimes in tech organizations that are male-dominated, um, feelings, um, you know, aren't, aren't fully appreciated necessarily. Um, but I think as human beings, we 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 kind of trust is sort of the 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 fuel that we have, the the that that sort of fuels you know our ability to connect and to collaborate. And without at least a basic form of trust, there is no connection, and it, it'll be very hard to, you know, work together in any meaningful way. So I think that the least thing that that has to happen is um, an initial getting to know each other, and that that's a trust building um, technique, um, and you know, the intention to to be to be honest and open, to be transparent. And that's another trust building technique and, and show respect. So we've got a few scrum values here, which which will be another trust building technique. And trust is certainly something that doesn't happen usually, you know, it doesn't come within a minute or so, but you know, it takes time to to build trust and earn someone's trust. But I think it's important to um, it's important to take the right steps um, and, and do those take those steps early on. 
And I really think that, you know, particularly for, for product owners, when you think about it, you know, the, the, the key challenge, one of the key challenges for product owners is that the product owners rely on the goodwill and the help of um, the development team members, but also the, the stakeholders, but, you know, don't have any what's referred to as transactional power. They're not the boss. They can't tell other people what to do. And, you know, to make things worse in a way, it can't usually offer an incentive like a bonus or pay rise. So in order to then, um, you know, get those individuals to follow our lead as product owners, you know, I think we really have to try and, and build trust so we can exercise a positive influence. So for me, you know, trust and trust building is really right at the heart of what it means to be an effective product owner. And bridging this back to the, the original topic of the product vision, what do you feel is the impact or could be the potential impact if you build this from the get-go on related to the vision? Yeah, nice question. So for me, the, the, the true power of a uh, shared uh, vision, a shared product vision, is that it really acts as the true north, that it, it offers a fundamental alignment of everyone involved in developing, designing, testing, and ultimately also providing the product. So the key stakeholder, somebody from, say, marketing, sales support, and, and then uh, the members of a cross-functional development team or you know all the developers. Um, and so, you know, if you bring people together, as I suggested earlier, and you have this initial um, kickoff uh, workshop, this collaborative visioning, strategizing workshop, where you um, decide on the vision together, you formulate it together, then that creates, in a way, a bond, um, you know, that that form of, of collaboration. And you, you essentially... You essentially develop a shared purpose. You could think of the vision also as a, a, a shared belief. And so, again, if, if that is truly shared, if people are involved in it and sort of, you know, if it's meaningful to the individuals, if they buy into it, then that is a bond that you create. And, and that what makes it so powerful. So, you know, vision vision isn't isn't powerful by writing it on a powerpoint slide or putting writing it on a post-it note and putting it up somewhere or telling people that is now our vision <laughs> but i think go. the real power comes through that act of co-creation right um speaking of co-creation and and for instance the um interdynamics of being together in the same building and, and being co-located that's now very limited due to covid and to this entire pandemic situation what's your advice when it comes to this to still keep it crisp to still keep it lively um, and still uh, to keep the level of trust high yeah it's certainly more uh, challenging i find than when we have the opportunity to be all in the same room uh, having said that uh, the the team that i work with uh you know, it's been distributed for many, many years. Um, I mean, we've got a team member in the in in the US, uh, and then uh, the other team members are distributed in the UK. Um, and so, what we do is we use, uh, you know, I, I guess like like everyone else, we use collaboration tools, and you know, we have regular um, uh, video calls. And um, I personally think it's amazing how collaboration tools, how much collaboration tools have um, improved over the last, say, five to ten years. Um, and you know it's it's great you know when we're talking on zoom uh, it's great to have tools like zoom that make it so easy to have you know i think fairly effective video calls because it's not quite the same as being in this in the same room but i think for the majority of the sessions and the majority of the meetings it, it really works very well um the few things i found that are helpful to do so um 
you know, reconnecting and making time um, and maybe a little bit more time at the beginning of a, a meeting just to, to ease into the meeting and kind of get reacquainted and, um, you know, just do a little bit of chit chat. I think in, 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 in a way that sort of rebuilds and reaffirms the trust and, and the connection. I think that is uh, particularly valuable in a, in an online context where, you know, it's kind of harder often to get subtle clues around body language and, you know, the emotions that it communicates. Um, yeah. How do you feel this is going to impact the future? Like is the future, is it going to be like this still? Because I don't know how it's with your experience, but if I look at my, my own country, um, people are pretty sick of this and want to go back to the office and, and, in the beginning, it was like, this works. It looks good. Um, it's better than we expected, than we anticipated for. But now we're in roughly a year in this situation and people are kind of like, meh, I don't want to do this anymore. I'm getting sick of it. Um, what's your what's your take on the future? Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting question. Uh, I wish I had a crystal ball, but... Uh, you know, I can only speculate. I think we'll probably see some some form of mixed model, but um, I do think that the situation we've had over the last twelve months or so with the global pandemic pandemic happening has been exceptional in the sense that you know not only has it affected us through um, online work, but you know we've had homeschooling, we've had holidays cancelled, you know we've had lockdowns and severe restrictions to what we're used to at least, you know, as Westerners. Um, so I think once that's all back to normal, you know, or whatever the new normal will look like, you know, I think that'll kind of highlight some of the benefits again of, of online work. Um, so yeah, I think of it's, it's going to be a mixed model, but I, I mean, I'm, again, I'm, I'm biased. I mean, I've, my work's been pr predominantly, that's not quite, yeah, a lot of my work's been online now for a number of years. I mean, I started to move a, a lot of client engagements online, um, uh, you know, sort of four or five years ago. So, and for me, as I've said before, many, many sessions, many, many meetings, many workshops can be effectively uh, facilitated online with the necessary preparation and, yeah, the necessary facilitation. So you already had a competitive advantage when the corona kicked in? I don't know, but I mean, I was certainly familiar with working online and running online workshops. Yes. Yeah. But it was still, you know, I mean, like, 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 I guess every business, you know, it was still a, a transition and a change. So, but I'm, I'm personally, I'm, you know, I, I, I can't, I can't complain, but then, you know, I've got my own office and, um, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have a wife who, uh, took care of the homeschooling issues. So I guess I'm, I'm in a, in a fairly luxurious position. I echo that. I having the same uh, same luxurious position. Um, speaking of other luxurious position, you are, as I mentioned, uh, on top of the game when it comes to product management. Uh, as the last question for this show, what's your ambition? What's my ambition? Um, so part of what um, motivates me and in a way you could say drives my, my work is, is really the, the desire to um, help product people, particularly people who work in an agile context, um, um, and to make it easier for those individuals to do to do a great job. Um, and that really goes back to my own involvement with agile and Scrum and product management. Uh, when I started out um, uh, getting involved in product management uh, about twenty years ago, 
um, you know, product management seemed very old school, very old fashioned to me. Um, and I, I could not understand how agile practices and product management could go together. And um, then my experience in the following years was that that was not only something I struggled with, but a lot of product people I met, um, you know, kind of had the same experience. And so, you know, if that's that's sort of what what's kind of fueled a lot of my work. Um, that I, I, I'm hoping to to come up with ways of working or, or improving existing ways of working, so that yeah, you know, to support product product people and particularly product owners. Um, I'm really curious how that's going to look like. If it has even the fraction of the impact you've had so far, uh, then I'm pretty sure you're going to do good. Well, thank you, Roman Pitcher. Thank you very much. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. I would like to thank Roman and you, the listener, for joining us again this week. This episode is one of a series, so make sure to subscribe and follow us on all the big podcasting platforms. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Buzzsprout, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, you name it. Make sure to go to the website of agilitymasters.com as well and subscribe to the newsletter in order to stay up to date with the latest information when it comes to this podcast, future giveaways, guest speakers, you name it. Feel free to reach out to us in the links provided in the show notes, whether that's LinkedIn, the website, any other platform. To provide feedback, ask any questions, general remarks, inspiration, you name it. Feel free to reach out. I'd love to hear from you. And next to that, I hope I can welcome you back next week. Until then.